starting right now. Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. Can you see me, Bruce? Oh, there we go. <laughs> I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing tonight? I am doing well. I'm doing well. Can you well. hear me? <laughs> I can hear you just fine. Good. All right. We've covered the basics. You can see me, and I can hear you. Excellent. All right. The monkeys can see and the monkeys can do tonight. We're, ready, we're good to go. <laughs> uh, no, that's I got. I mixed the metaphor. What's that one where the monkeys? One has a has handled. Monkey see, oh, monkey can do. Yeah, nah, see no evil, hear no evil. That's what I was trying to get at. I forgot. Speak, I, I got the wrong. Speak no evil. I got the wrong monkey analogy. So see, see no evil, hear no evil. Well, two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's us. We're here to speak <laughs> evil about the Edmonton Oilers. No, we never do that. We're big Oiler fans. Uh, Bruce, let's talk. Uh, we're uh, we're on our unending investigation into the Oilers' upcoming, the distant future series against the Chicago Blackhawks. And we're finding out a little bit about that. We're digging into the Oilers and we're figuring out what their lineup should be. So... This is the longest uh, preview, playoff preview in history. And uh, anyone still with us in this marathon playoff preview, congratulations and thank you very much for hanging in there. I hope that you're finding this interesting. I'm actually kind of finding it interesting. I'm finding lots of interesting tidbits and and uh, so are you. So tonight we're going to talk about where James Neal is going to fit in into the cornucopia of Edmonton Oilers lines uh, heading into the Chicago Blackhawks series. We're going to talk about the Blackhawks forward lines and um, who might go where. We're going to talk about um, varying success of different Oiler lines and we'll dig into also who should play with Connor McDavid. Let's start with James Neal, Bruce. Sure. What are you thinking about where James Neal is going to fit into this uh, Oilers lineup come, come early August? Is that when it's going to be? Something like that. Rock. Yeah, Long yeah, way. okay. Yeah, I've been looking. I've been looking long and hard at uh, at James Neal. I'm writing about him tonight, and you know, you, you look at the order stats from the year, and he's he's in the top six in basically every category: ice time, uh, ice time against elites. Uh, he's uh, fourth on the team in goals. He's fifth, I think, among forwards in points or sixth. He's um, uh, he's just right on the on the cusp of the top six. And then, of course, at the trade deadline, they went out and they traded for two sort of skilled wingers that could buy for that ice time spot in the in the top six in uh, Andreas Athanasiu and Tyler Ennis, who could be knocking Neil off of his perch. And my original thought was, you know, if Neil gets knocked out of the top six, he could get knocked right out of the lineup because. We've been talking in terms of um, uh, on the third and fourth lines. I know you've been talking about Joachim Niegaard moving in alongside of uh, of um, Shane, uh, and, Shane Archibald. and Archibald. And on the fourth line, we, you know, there's a variety of, uh, of uh, options. And, uh, you know, the orders are not hurting for depth. You know, they got they got uh, they got a nice group of, uh, of forwards this year. They do. But, when I dug into one particular stat category, 
uh, it hit me over the head that I don't know what line he's going to be on, but I'd be just totally shocked if James Neal is not in the lineup, at least for the beginning of the playoffs, unless there's something wrong, like he's comes back and he's not ready or what have you. And that is playoff experience. And it is just very striking. If you look at the uh, at the Oilers' entire roster of uh, uh, experience in the playoffs, James Neal has played 104 playoff games in his career. In fact, this will be his 10th year in a row playing for in the playoffs for, for a playoff team. He's been on some pretty good teams over those years, and he's been a good support player in Pittsburgh, Nashville. I won't say much about Calgary. But uh, Las Vegas, he was, a, you know, a useful player there. And, you know, he's lost, uh, he's lost some of his edge over the years, but 104 playoff games played. So he's over 100. Not one other Oiler has even 50. Chris, Chris Russell is next with 49. And then you drop all the way down to Alex Chieson with 30. And Riley Sheehan with 29. I mean, all these guys, you know, got most of their playoff experience on the on other teams until you get down to, you know, Connor McDavid, 13, Leon Dreisaitl, 13, Ryan Nugent Hopkins, 13, Darnell Nurse, 13, Oscar Kleffbaum, 12. You know, they all played in 2017. So it's crucial, essential that they have some playoff experience, but it sure isn't much. And those 104 games, and especially when you're lining up against a team like Chicago Blackhawks, and you look at the guys on their team. Jonathan Taves, 128. Patrick Kane, 127. Duncan Keith, 126. You know, the same guys played all those games over all those years. Brent Seabrook, 123. Now, he's a doubtful starter. Uh, we don't know for sure. There's a few guys on Chicago's list that had what they thought were season-ending surgeries, but three months later, who the hell knows? You know, they were supposed to be getting yeah. better over the summer. And whether Seabrook's on that list... Corey Crawford is Chicago's fifth most experienced uh, playoff experience, uh, playoff guy with 87 games. Edmonton's fifth most is Mike Smith, also their goalie, with 24 games. I mean, it's just a huge disparity in, in experience from one team to the other. And that is the one thing that James Neal has in spades, and I, I'm convinced that for that reason alone, uh, uh, Coach Dave Tippett is going to find a way to get him into the lineup for the start of that series and, you if know, you, I mean, play it depending on how he plays, of course, we'll see what happens. But uh, I think they're going to really value that. Uh, I think all 200 hockey men value playoff experience, and I do as well. Um, Bruce, I'm going to get into this particular stat. Dave Tippett kind of tipped his hand, I thought, about what he's thinking for the fourth line. If you go back to his interview with Bob Stoffer. Mm -hmm. on um was it tuesday no wednesday wednesday uh and i remember that because dave tippett bumped me off the show that day so oh yeah <laughs> tragic it's on the next day it's okay uh and congratulations by the way to bob Stoffer and oilers mm -hmm. now they absolutely dominated the radio uh ranking crushed it on the ratings huh? yeah so bob's got a great show he's a very very hard-working guy extremely knowledgeable um I mean, his show is a must-listen, I think, if you're an Oilers fan. So way to go, Bob Stoffer. Uh, so Bruce Tippett said that he liked the line of Chase on Kara and Neil. Mm -hmm. They played together and played some really heavy hockey. Mm 
So I checked <laughs> yeah. into this. They are bigger guys, all of them over 200 pounds, well over 200 pounds. I think Chase on 210 if he's not the smallest of them. Mm-hmm. Maybe Neil's not 200 pounds. I'm not sure. He's kind of oh, a... Oh, yeah. He's 212. Six foot three, 212. He's a big okay. man. Uh, so that line um, played 34 minutes, only 34 minutes together. So it's a pretty small sample size. But I can see why Tippett's stuck in his head because they scored three goals for, mm-hmm. had zero goals against. Like so that. in a very... In a very uh, that's going to stick in your head. And I, I'll tell you what, it's pretty hard to find line mates who had success with, with Jujar Kara, honestly, yep. this year. I don't want to be uh, too cruel to the player, but maybe mm-hmm. there's a line I'm not thinking of, Bruce, but I can't. So I, I, I looked at Kara when he played with Archibald and Shan. Mm-hmm. They had a 25% goals for percentage. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that was 156 minutes. Yeah, they started the year together and they struggled mightily and two of them got hurt and there was a lot of sort of feeling out going on at the beginning with those guys gets worse Mm -hmm. he played 107 minutes which is again it's a long that's like what uh seven games well if if you're on the fourth line that's like 10 games together with shan and patrick russell kara did (laughs) first they had a 14 percent goals for percentage one goal for one four six against so so you can see dave tippett (laughs) Who am I going to have on my fourth line with Juju Kara? Like I, I, we, he, we want him because he's big. He in the playoffs he could be tough. He's a he but most penalties. of all, he's a crucial penalty killer. We got to have like you know normally yeah. we might go with Haas, but Kara's the penalty kill guy. I don't see, think we're going to see Gaetan Haas. So I, I, listen, I, there's no betting line on this, what the order's fourth line is going to be. But if it's not right. Era, Chase on, and Neil in the first game, I, I like there could be injuries or something like that. But if other than that, that's the fourth line in the first game. So I think your prediction is correct. And um, my, the, the, the little bit of research I did on this completely backs up your hypothesis that James Neal will be in the lineup. Uh, Neil also, Bruce, he didn't have a whole lot of success on other lines. And... Um, I'll just quickly run down which lines did have success. The top line was uh, Kara, Chase on <coughs> Neil without 100%. Goals for percentage. You can't beat that. <coughs> Excuse me. But they played together so little that it's hardly... Um, then we have the the single best line in the NHL. The Dynamite line with uh, Dreisaitl, uh, Yamamoto, and Nugent Hopkins. 328 minutes together at even strength. A goals for percentage, Bruce, of 77%. 30 goals for and nine against. Yeah, they were, they were red hot for sure. That's rocking it. The next best mm-hmm. line, uh, these both both these guys had limited time together. Haas, Russell, and Granlund. <clears throat> 50% goals for percentage mm-hmm. um, in 87 minutes. Negard, Archibald, and Shan. Yeah. 50% goals for percentage in 68 minutes. Then, and here's here's kind of a shocking and somewhat disappointing number. McDavid, Dreisaitl, and Cassian in 455 minutes, 31 goals for, 32 goals against, 49% goals for percentage. Yeah, they were a huge plus through uh, the first quarter of the season, and they gave it all back in the second quarter, and then uh, uh, Tippett broke them up for the rest of the season. They didn't play as a line. And it was because of the the bleeding of goals against in the in the second quarter. 
you can think of any other line, line. Oh, sorry. If you can think of any other lines that I missed, I'm trying to think mm-hmm. of lines that I missed, like players who played together along a lot, and I couldn't really think of like so I have the Shan line. Right. And I have Shan um Shan uh, Archibald and Kara, but I couldn't think of Oh. Any other? Was there like Nugent Hopkins? When Nugent Hopkins had his own line, who was he usually with? Was it with Neil and? He played a lot with with Neil, Neil for sure. And who else would that well, be? A lot Char- of Chase on, a lot of Chase on. All right, I'll search those lines and yeah. and. Uh, I know add- that uh, yeah. Um, so if you put Negard though with um, uh, Shane and Archibald, yeah. Uh, then in your top six, you got. You got left wingers, Nugent Hopkins. Uh, let's leave him where he's been, where he's been playing. Yeah, really the dynamite well. line together. Then, yeah. yeah. Then who do you put with McDavid? Then do you put Ennis or do you put Athanasiu? And which one do you put in the press box? Okay, here's the here's an interesting thing for you, Bruce. I'm going to name f- two groups of four wingers, mm-hmm. and I want you to guess who which wingers had the better goals for percentage when they were teamed with Connor McDavid. So here's the first four wingers. Joachim yep. Nygaard, Andreas Athanasiu, Josh Archibald, and Zach Cassian. That's mm-hmm. group A, okay? Yep. Group B is Ryan Nugent Hopkins, Leon Dreisaitl, Sam Gagne, and James Neal. Which group? I go with group number one. It's not close. Yeah. It's not close. Nygaard in 54 mm-hmm. minutes had a 75% goals for percentage. Athanasiu in 44 minutes, 66%. Archibald in 150 minutes, 66%. And Cassian, 56 minutes, it was just 52%. But the other guys, Nugent Hopkins, 47%. Drysaddle, uh, 45% goals for yeah. percentage. Gagne, 45%. And James Neal, 41%. 11 goals for 16 against when McDavid and Neal were on the ice at even strength. Now, there's a. We, I should say this. These are small sample sizes, yes. and it's also goals are a small sample size, right? So this could be misleading. Mm-hmm. There could oh, be yeah. a certain level of misdirection in these numbers, and you shouldn't. They shouldn't necessarily direct your course of action. Nonetheless, it should direct your course of action to some extent, probably a great extent. When you look at the dynamite lines, success. Yeah. If you don't have that line together in in the first game, I think you're it's coaching malpractice at the NHL level. Um, and you can't, and if you have Patrick Russell, Jujar Kara and Riley Sheehan with their 14% goals for percentage, again, that would be coaching malpractice. Yeah. But it's Bruce, what I found interesting is mm-hmm. McDavid doesn't seem to need to play with skilled players to have success. He can play with Negard, Athanasiu, Archibald and Cassian, who are all similar kind of fast, straight up and down players, up and down the wing, agitate, go to the net fast back and forth players, each one of those guys. And there was more success with those guys, mm-hmm. those up and down straight line guys, than there were with the more creative guys like Hop- Nugent Hopkins, Dreisaitl, Gagne, and James Neal, who's, um, I guess he's more of a shooter at this point than anything. He's not really a fast, uh, he's not really a he's creative. He's not a fast train. That's not a, sure. And he's not a great passer of the puck. But right. what do you make of that, if anything? Well, yeah, uh, the goals for is a very volatile uh, statistic and that some of the uh, underlying statistics that should produce good goals for, the the correlation wasn't great this year. 
And goals for, I mean, I'm a goals guy myself. I value goals way over shots, of course. I mean, that's how you win games. But uh, they are the, they do have the biggest error bar because you have the smallest sample, right? You have one goal yeah. for every 10 shots for every 20 Corsi events. So you, you just don't compile your data set at anywhere near the speed that you do the, the, the shot metrics. Uh, but, I mean, shots are shots. I mean, I uh, we talked about this before. You know, I'd rather have uh, Leon Dreisaitl uh, shooting from a one-timer from the right face-off circle than Andre Sekra trying to shoot one through a bunch of shin pads from outside, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, it's um, it's a uh, uh, it's it's volatile, but I value it. And so I would keep definitely would keep the dynamite line together. You know, Stauffer he put out his own lines the other day, and basically they were the same twelve forwards as the Oilers used in Game Seventy One. And all he did was switch Nugent Hopkins back to uh, playing with Leon and uh, and Yamamoto. And he switched Tyler Ennis back from that line to with Connor and Cassian. And then he had Athanasiu with Shane and Archibald that did play in game 71. And as did the Neil Kara Chieson line that we've been talking about played in game 71. So where does Joachim Nigar go, whether he's ready or not? Who does he play, take out? My original thought was maybe he takes James Neal's place. And then I looked at, you know, playoff experience, 104 games to zero. I have a feeling the coach is going to go with 104, you know, just a gut feeling. Yeah, and Negard may be on the bench. Like, you can see yeah, that. He might be wants. in game two, you know, I mean. But I'll tell you what, Bruce, like, so here's what I take out of it. Like, I do mm-hmm. think if it was just, if it was just one, the, the players who did well with McDavid are of a certain type. And I think that might be telling us something uh, that, that um, McDavid is such a straight line player himself, except when he gets in the offensive zone, then he's everywhere. But when he's going up the ice, he's a rocket. And these other players who, who can rocket up the ice, it might be an idea. Like, like I'm not saying you go with Nigard, Athanasiu, and McDavid, but maybe right. you do. Maybe you do, because think about that line for a second. Think about the speed of that line when you're out against that line. Greased lightning. Like I would. Too bad there's. <laughs> it's too bad there's not an um, exhibition. Maybe there are some exhibition games or some some in a re, in a regular season when you can try out your lines. I'd love to see a line next year because all these guys will probably be back with the orders uh, of Nigard Athanasiu and McDavid together. And you know, the, the success Archibald had is, is surprise. So surprising because he's not a skill player in any way, but we can all remember he did very well with McDavid. And again, he's, he's a straight line player who's got some speed and some grit to his game. So he's awesome. a similar player. The Cassian, I think will be on McDavid's line in the playoffs. Yeah. And, and I, if it was me picking, I really liked Ennis, although like Ennis's right. results with McDavid, five goals for, five goals against or kind of, but I, I, I did see some chemistry there and Ennis is a veteran player and I would like to see Ennis and Cassian. Personally, that's what I, I think I would pick. Although I can see, um, I don't know they're going to go with the, you know, the all speed line of the drag race line right. of Egard, Athanasi and McDavid, but, um, uh, I, I could see the uh, attraction of, well, there's no really no, they're not going to experiment and do it. So in theory, that might work, but I, I think they would wait till the regular season to ever give that a try. 
Yeah, well, the funny thing was at the end, they went with kind of with that no-speed line of Kara between Neil and Chason, but they did well, as you say. And Kara moved into the middle, and maybe he's a better center than a winger. I mean, if you just believe the the goals results, he did better playing center. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I believe it, uh, but I, you know, it was the last three games I think that Haas was in the press box because they moved Kara um, into the middle, and that was when they put that line of those three big slower guys together. But they did all right, so I wouldn't surprise me one bit that that's the line that that uh, starts in the playoffs. And I just think a knee guard to start is just going to be the odd man out. Yeah. I, I don't like Haas and Russell, Patrick Russell are going to be the fifth line. Yeah. That's a pretty good fifth line. Like it's a spare players like that. Yeah. Oilers got so much better depth than they've had for years. I don't, I, I think Haas is a better even strength hockey player than uh, Kara. I, mm-hmm. I like Haas's defensive play in his own zone. Mm-hmm. I liked it from the start of the year. He covered those guys. He kept himself between his check and the net consistently. The only reason I've, you, you, I was cringing a bit when you're talking about Carrot Center, and 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 again, Juju Care was a fantastic penalty killer this year, sure. but I just those those turnovers in his own zone in the slot kept popping in my head as you were saying that. Mm-hmm. Maybe those happened when he was a winger and not when he's a center. So he pretty much so he can have some. He hope. only played a few games at center, and they were the last few, and it looked like he was impressing um, Tippett enough that he kept throwing him back out there for you know, the next game. And I mean, obviously we don't know what would have happened in the last 11 games. A lot of things might've changed, but that's where things were when this season became frozen in time. Bruce, you did a little research and digging into uh, just the, the changing, like forever there was a complaint about the Oilers roster that it was, didn't a, didn't have enough NHL players and B that it was an unbalanced roster didn't have enough. Sometimes it didn't have enough young players. Sometimes it didn't have enough older players. Often it lacked players in the prime years of their career between right. 23 and 28. The 23 to 28 year old or 24 to 27 year old crowd, whichever, mm-hmm. however you want to frame it, it really lacked players in that category. How do the Oilers this year stack up to the Blackhawks, for instance, in that category this year? Very different. I mean, if you look back in the past, you can look at, the, I just looked that two seasons, but I think you could look at most seasons in the 2010s, and you'd find the Oilers always had a couple of couple of young players in the 18, 19, 20-year-old category, and they'd ba- balance that out with a couple of relics in the 35-plus category, but they were always missing in the middle of the lineup. And the 2015-16, I chose that one because that was the beginning of the McDavid era. And they had three core players, really, that were 18 to 20 years old when, you know, Nurse, Dreisaitl, and McDavid basically broke into the team, into the league together. Remember that training camp that year? And you could just see the changing of the guard taking place. And so they played um, uh, three three players of the 27 on the roster who played 15 or more games. They played... uh, uh, 13% of the games, 15% of the minutes, 20% of the points. So, they, you know, they got a lot of minutes and they made those minutes count. Like they were, you know, they were productive players. But in the middle of the lineup, uh, between 24 and 29 years old, uh, that only accounted for about uh, uh, just about 50% of the ice time. And 
Chicago, on the other hand, had a had a more experienced team, and they were uh, especially in the thirty to thirty two. They had uh, they had more experience. Of course, this was the la- they were the defending champions for the third and last time, so they were just beginning their, to come off of the peak. Uh, but they had zero players in the eighteen to twenty range, like none. Mm-hmm. And the Oilers had sort of three of their most important players were in that range. Well, Chicago beat Edmonton in the standings by thirty-three points that year, like it was not close. And this year, it's not quite the reverse. But what we have for the Oilers this is a nice tightening into the middle of the pack. They have zero eighteen to twenty-year-olds this year, none for the first time in ages. The Oilers haven't forced some teenager some rookie uh, pro right into the NHL and, and, you know, right into an important position. That's been their standard fare. Well, Ken Holland, that's not how he does business. And you can see it. 18 to 20-year-old, no players. Uh, 21 to 23-year-olds, uh, about uh, 20% of their players were in that range. Mm-hmm. And 24 to 26-year-olds, about 40%. And 27 to 29, about 30%. So that's like 90% of the ice time is guys between 21 and 29. And then in the 30 to 32 range, basically they had James Neal. And then right at the end, they had um, Tyler Ennis. That was 30. Yeah. Uh, and I guess they had Sam Gagne before that, it was 30. But, that you know, they're by far the lion's share of their team is within maybe three years of their peak. Like we say, a peak player is 20, 27 years old. Well, nowadays in the in the 23 to 26 group, you have all of McDavid, Dreisaitl, Nurse, Nugent Hopkins, Clefbaum, which to me, that's the five core players on the Oilers. Are the, you know, first round draft choices from the first half of the last decade who are now... You know, those five guys, among them, they have over 2,000 games in the NHL. Well, four years ago, those same five guys had, you know, a couple hundred games in the NHL, you know, a few hundred games at most. And so as they've sort of moved into the sort of wheelhouse near the middle of their career, Chicago stars have started to uh, rotate out of that sort of high point of their career and, and down the, you know, down the shoulder of their declining years, and you're now you're talking about Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves, both 31 years old, uh, Duncan Keith, who's, what, 36, uh, Brent Seabrook, who's 34. I mean, those are Chicago's core players of all their cup teams. Well, I mean, Taves and Kane are still fantastic players at age 31, don't get me wrong, but they're probably down a court from where they were at 27 when they were, you know, just winning their the last of their Stanley Cups at uh, at age 26, and so that's an area where it's just it's just one of these uh, rotation things. Like uh, uh, a team comes together and they come up together, and then uh, you know if you have if you have a good core of similar ages, well, eventually they're all going to get old together, and and uh, that's what they're seeing in in Chicago. So uh, to me, Edmonton has a significant advantage. I mean, Chicago played, they had uh, 18 to 20-year-olds on their team this year. They had, uh, I think, three guys, uh, two for sure. They had two, their last two first-round draft choices, Kirby Dock and uh, uh, what's the other fellow's name, uh, Adam Boquist, both played regularly for Chicago this year. Whereas the equivalent to Adam Bocas, it was taken in the same draft two picks later. Evan Bouchard never played a game in the NHL. 
right? Because the Oilers had defensemen that were ahead of him on the curve, closer to their own peaks, that they could afford to keep Bouchard down in the minors for a while. So at this time, it seems like Edmonton has the advantage that it's that Chicago has had forever. Huh. Yeah, and this is why Bruce, I'm so bullish on the Oilers right now. Actually, mm-hmm. it's a Stanley Cup contender because this is a team that's. It's got everything, the depth, the top end scoring, the penalty killing, the power play, the, the strong defense, top 4D, mm-hmm. uh, the three lines that are working, decent fourth line. Everything's in place for them to go on a strong Stanley Cup run. It really is. They should be considered one of the Stanley Cup favorites in the top eight teams to win the Stanley Cup, I'd say, maybe even the top five. Uh, but for one thing, and this is the goaltending issue, and and uh, that's where that's where they could have an early exit if Smith and Koskinen don't come through. Now, this is the way it is with every team in the playoffs this year with their goaltending, of course. But some teams are more likely to get better goaltending than the Oilers, are they not? Like, the Oilers, with the Oilers goaltending, it's it's a bit more iffy than a lot of the teams because um, Smith is old and not at his peak anymore, and Koskinen is unproven. So that's Smith the big has- question, Mark. Smith has a career playoff save percentage of 938. Woo! Prove it in the play. And that's for 25 games. I'll yeah. take that. Yeah, he was super red hot for Arizona one year, and they went into the third round. Uh, and you remember the, the series when, yeah, uh, I think I do remember when uh, Dustin Brown need uh, Shane Doan in a key play, and the, there was this huge uproar, and it was like, Coles to Newcastle, two dirty players, but uh, uh, Doan made Doan made a lot out of it. And, uh, anyway, that was they got knocked out in the third round that year, and Smith had been fantastic. Like he was the reason they got as far as they did. So that's ancient history, and that's most of his he was, sixteen of his playoff games. But even last year, yeah, he, he came in for me. Calgary, and he was the only thing saving Calgary from even more utter humiliation than they than they did receive because they. He got slaughtered with over 50 shots in two games in a row. And then in Colorado, it was just, they were all over him. And it was only Smith that kept the score down, you know, below a snowman probably. And so he made a lot of saves in there, even though they, they lit him up for for uh, uh, quite a few goals. But, I mean, 50 shots, you're going to get your goals. Yeah. So, so the Chicago, so, you were mentioning that the Chicago stars might be down a few quarts mm-hmm. and i was expecting to see that when i dug into their numbers but and i can't remember so if we much, talked eh? about this on the last <laughs> podcast or not but I'll, so I'll just go quickly over the scoring numbers at even strength this year jonathan taves outscored connor mcdavid at even strength it, taves had he was the 10th highest even strength point getter in the nhl this year 3.02 points per 60 mcdavid was at 2.87 so they're very close Right. Uh, the Yamamoto was seventh uh, over seventh in the league. Drysaddle wow. with eight, t- Taves tenth, Kane eleventh, McDavid seventeen, and Dominic Kubalik, who's quite a fantastic rookie hockey player. I think he scored thirty goals for the Blackhawks. He was twenty second, and then there's a pretty big drop off after that. Uh, all for both teams. So both teams have, and, and it turns out, Bruce. When, they didn't have that line of Taves, Kane, and Kabalik together very much in Chicago this year. Right. Only for a hundred minutes or so. But when they did, those guys just smoked the opposition. They had like a 70, I think it was 71% goals for percentage. Wow. Um, that group of players. 
so you'd think why why don't you just have that as a line k uh kane caves and kabbalic it just turns out though that there's no other combinations in chicago that work at all really if you don't everyone on the chicago blackhawks there's there's a couple of, when you look at their lineup everyone that plays with patrick kane starts scoring points and plays well patrick kane is is i think easily the best player on that team and easily one of the best players in the nhl right now remains so he's an extremely dangerous player that wasn't the case with Taves. Taves um, only, he only, he had this high even strength scoring, but in terms of goals for and against, when you, when you mm-hmm. balance that out, they were, they were giving up a lot of goals when, when Jonathan Taves was on the ice. So there was lots of scoring, but there was lots of scoring against. And only when he was teamed with Kabalik did you get a good goals for percentage. I think it was 57% mm-hmm. for uh, the Hawks with Kabalik out there. So they're kind of, and it's also interesting because they have a couple of players, Alex Debrinket, who a lot of people really like. Man, he had a tough year. He had a tough they, year. Yeah. They could hardly find anyone who would have success on the ice in the top in a top six role with Alex Debrinket. With Taves, there was a goals for percentage of thirty percent, six wow. goals for fourteen against with uh, Kane. Mm-hmm. With Patrick Kane, he was the one exception to the rule of Debrinket, and it was forty-four uh, percent goals for percentage in four hundred and twenty-eight minutes. They played to those guys together. And Kane? Yeah, wow. to break it and Kane. Now maybe they're too similar. Maybe they're they both need the puck or something. But that did not work. I thought they both play right wing. But I guess if they played 400 minutes together, they didn't both play right wing. <laughs> yeah, unless I have the stats wrong, but I don't believe it. I was checking these and rechecking them. Um, that said, there was one combination where you had Kane and to break it on the ice together when they were with Dylan Strom, mm-hmm. where they had real success. So that was the one place where you could put Debrinket in a top six role and he had some real success. So it looks like one line in Chicago should be Strom, Kane, and Debrinket. And then they have to figure out who should play with Kane, excuse me, T- uh, Taves and Kabalik. And they don't really have any obvious choice. Brandon Saad was was kind of like Debrinket. He struggled, mm-hmm. with, struggled with various players. He struggled when he was with Jonathan Taves. He struggled when he was with Kabalik. Uh, that line was was not good when they had the Saad, Caves, and Kabbalah out together. That line wasn't wasn't very good at all, and they used them quite a bit. So I, I'm thinking they might want to use a young guy called Alexander Nylander, mm-hmm. who actually scored fairly at a fairly good rate at even strength, and he didn't play with Taves and Kabbalah at all to speak of yeah, the season. But he did when he when he just played with Taves on his own. Those two guys seemed to click. So um, they might want to go with Nylander. And that was interesting because that Nylander trade for Yokoharu was very controversial. Yeah. People thought the Sabres had won that trade. But I would say in the, the first season, Nylander had a pretty darn good season, pretty fairly promising season with the uh, Blackhawks. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see him on a top line in the playoffs. Yeah, I had him in my keeper league and I kept, every time I watched Chicago, he was playing on a line without the star players and I kept swearing at the coach, but uh, uh, he's pretty smooth. I mean, he's a Nylander, right? And they all are they all are pretty nifty dipsy doodlers, the dad and the brother, and uh, young Alexander as well. And, you know, he's young. I mean, that's the thing. They got they got some superior talent that's young. I mean, Dylan Strong uh, was a former number three overall draft choice. You know, they got Kirby Doc on the third or fourth line or wherever the heck it is they got him. 
you know, a very high-end uh, um, talent from last year's draft pool. You know, it's probably a couple of years too early uh, for you know him to make a real impact. But uh, they've got, uh, uh, you know, between Debrinkat, Nylander, Strom, Doc. I mean, that's Kubalik. four. Uh, Kubalik, yeah, yeah. I mean, Kubalik's a bit older, 24-year-old rookie. But that's still, that's some pretty impressive young talent on the, on the forward line. And then, of course, yeah. on the back end, they got Boquist that's just making his mark. Yeah. Debrink had had a real down year. Maybe it's just yeah. a one-year thing. I don't know if he was injured or not. That's often the case when you see a pretty strong downward trend in a player's game in, in one season. Yeah, he had 41 goals last year, and it looked like he was going to be a perennial big-time scorer. Their forwards line, Bruce, strike me as one Yamamoto shy of a load. Like, you remember how everything changed for the Oilers when suddenly oh. this player came and he made this one line work, but then uh, the other other lines also worked. Chicago just seems to be missing, in some ways, that player who can play with Kabbalah and Taves, for instance, and suddenly make that line really strong and go. Because Andre Kajula, eh? It doesn't, he didn't get a lot of time with the top guys. Yeah. Uh, uh, he wasn't, they didn't really trust him to, to play those top six minutes. So, um, and Brandon Saad just seemed to take a step back. I don't know my, like, and I'm just going by the stats and I'm going by kind of imperfect stats goals right. for percentage, which again, we've talked about how iffy that is. So I could be wrong about a lot of this, but, um, Brandon Saad looked like, man, I don't know. Was, was this, was the Panarin for Saad trade made, oh, made for. Was it made for salary cap reasons? Because if it not was, really, because they were both like six million dollar players at the time. Uh, I think Panarin, his contract may have been coming due. Like there, there was, there was some issue there that they decided to bring back Brandon Saad, who they traded away to Columbus. And to me, that that trade was a disaster for Chicago. Yeah. And, it really was. It really was. You know, I, mean, I mean, Saad's an okay player, but holy moly, Artemi Parnarin's one of the best players in the NHL. Well, just think if you had this team oh. that I just described. So yeah. let's say you had one line of uh, Strom, Kane, and Debrinkit, which had uh, in 244 <laughs> minutes together, they were 14 goals for eight against. Okay. That's pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, that line actually worked this year, even with Debrinkit having this iffy year. If you could throw out Kabalik, Taves, and Panarin, uh, yeah. For your next line, they wouldn't be in twelfth place. Let's put it that way. No, it seems to change <laughs> the face and the fate of the Chicago Blackhawks franchise. In a strange trade to make, when you still have Kane and Taves in their late prime, still, right. still could they could still win Stanley Cups, and you're trading away the guy, the best young player, other than those two guys. I don't like. I, I, I I'm just looking at it. Yeah, well, but that trade, man, that was a brutal trade. Oof. Yeah, well, the post that I wrote about the age of the players, I went back and I chose that 2015-16 season, as I mentioned, and the two youngest Chicago forwards on that team uh, were Philip Deneau, 22-year-old Philip Deneau, who they ah. traded to Montreal for an ancient Thomas Fleischmann, who was at the very end of the line, played a few games for Chicago and was done. Philip Deneau is now a legitimate Selkie Trophy candidate. And then when you take, uh, at the end of that year, they traded Toivu Teravainen, their youngest forward, to Carolina Hurricanes 
and a salary dump. They had to get rid of Brian Bickle's salary, and they had to sweeten the pot, and they threw in Toivu Taravine, and they got a couple of picks back, but they didn't do anything with the picks, at least not yet. And so basically they took two young, super uh, talented, or at least, uh, I mean, I don't know if you call Deneau super talented, but man, Good a player, player like that. Yeah, yeah. Like a, I mean, I'm just imagining, I mean, if I was a Chicago fan, I'd be thinking back on those trades the way I do think are back on the on the trade of Ryan Strom and, <laughs> and, well, and, I and Aaron trade is way. You know, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you put so all was, those trades together, they got rid of like some pretty strong talent up front and they didn't get near as much back as they gave away. They tra- He was 25 years old, Bruce, when they traded him. He, he, <laughs> excuse me. He just, he was, he scored 74 points in 82 games for Chicago Mm-hmm. Then he had a then they had a terrible playoff series. Four games they got bumped out. He only had one assist in four games. Mm-hmm. And maybe it was one of those things where oh geez he you know let us down in the playoffs. So we, we need to get we need to get tougher. We need better chemistry. We need a bigger you know we need to change the mix. So let's let's bring in Brandon Saad again. But we wow, twenty five year old player who's almost a point per game player in his yeah. first two seasons in the NHL and you're moving him out. Uh, that's just yeah. Cool. All I know is if they had a line, extra line on their team that had Philip Deno between Toivo Taravine and, and Artemi Panarin, that would be absolute <laughs> killer. Ouch. Three three real good players that they that they got they, less than value for. Then they could have left Kirby Doc and Major Junior, where he probably would have been better off. And uh, exactly. Well, they probably wouldn't have been drafting Kirby. They wouldn't have probably they wouldn't not be in a position to draft Kirby Duck. So, exactly. oh well, three Stanley Cups uh, for that regime and the Chicago Blackhawks. So they were doing something right uh, all those years. They had to they had to shed a lot of players. To be fair to them, they had to shed a lot yeah. of really good hockey players for salary cap reasons. And and uh, so you could say, well, why didn't you do a better job of managing the salary cap well it's hard right like when you're winning stanley cups it's very difficult and sure they overpaid for some seabrook some other contracts were and um bickle as you mentioned Mm -hmm. and but man they lost a lot of really good hockey players in in the in the non-salary cap era of the nhl the blackhawks probably would have won four or five stanley cups i think that team as opposed to uh three which is, which well, is, I know. I mean, they, they won their first cup in 2010 and that year, that summer, because of the, all the salary things that were coming due, like uh, Taves and Kane that were both at the end of their ELC. So they got both got like $5 million raises. And they had to dump Dustin Bufflin, Andrew Ladd. Uh, they lost their goalie, Antinemi, at that time because they, you know, they just didn't have the, the, the room to pay him. And uh, they moved on from a couple other players too. I can't remember. It was a quite a list though. And Stan Bowman, Boland, uh, David Boland, yeah, yeah, which and, yeah. and he was an important player. Uh, actually, they, he he went after 2013, so he was a diff, he was a different turnover group than the 2010 group. But uh, uh, the salary cap clipped Chicago's wings pretty hard, and they still got three cups in six years. So Brad- Stan, Stan Bowman, I mean, his latest mistakes after the last cup has, you know, one of the reasons they've fallen from contention is that they, they just don't have a good enough supporting cast for for their big, uh, you know, their 
they're they're core players. Brandon Saad was I think 23 when they made that trade. He had uh, was coming off 82 games, 53 points for the Blue Jackets, and um, yeah, he had won two cups in Chicago, and uh, he was a young player, young, um, big, strong two-way hockey player. So there you go. That's how Stanley Cups are won and lost, and and yep. uh, woe to the Chicago Blackhawks for that trade. Well, Bruce, um, anything else we were going to talk about tonight, or have we covered it all? Yeah. Uh, well, we talked about Neil and Neil's line mates, and by by extension, sort of the line, potential line combinations, because I know you were looking at McDavid's line mates. Yeah. And uh, I think that's uh, sort of the. The uh, main things that either things we've written about recently or are about to write write about in the next day or two that this uh, podcast will be uh, pertinent to those posts. So yeah, I guess the the players are going to start skating together. Is it June eighth tomorrow? Yes. Uh, it's tomorrow yeah. Monday. Yeah. So we'll see who's comes to Edmonton, who's here in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. We'll see when the European players start to arrive yeah. here, um, which yeah, I think Kurt- is a big thing. Go ahead. Kurt had a list in uh, his post today of guys that were hanging around town. Yeah. And he said, you know, uh, Nugent Hopkins and Kara are out in uh, BC. And Nugent Hopkins apparently is no, in no rush to come to Edmonton to join the camp. As long as he can get on, out on the ice wherever, you know, he yeah. just needs to start skating. It's just going to be so weird, David, to go from uh, a training camp right into the playoffs. I mean, two exhibition games, but... Right into the playoffs. I see the NBA figured out a way to finish their regular season in some reasonable format and then go to playoffs as opposed to this NHL craziness. But the NBA. What can we do but sigh in dismay? The NBA. The NHL decides. (laughs) The NBA has a huge TV contract, absolutely massive, Mm -hmm. and maybe more of a TV revenue league than the NHL. So maybe there was like much huge, much larger financial incentive for the NBA to do that. I, I'm just guessing. I don't know the answer to that either. One, one hub city, Orlando. Yeah. They're all there. eh? Wow. They got all those hotels, the Disney hotels, I guess. eh? Small world after all. Yeah. I guess there's all these (laughs) hotels. A lot of people aren't there. Uh, Florida's having just right now, a like a massive upsurge. I noticed in uh, COVID cases. So, yeah, well, Anything. Anyway, these things change fast. Are they actually counting them? I mean, Florida is one of those ones <laughs> that's a little suspect about how they, yeah. about their record keeping so, and such. And you know, I mean, something like that that could really crimp their style if they're if they're putting all their eggs in one basket and then something goes to hell on the and you know, on outbreak side. But yeah, I guess the idea is for all of this, you, you could have it in a place where, you, where there was actually massive pandemic going on, and you have the players in quarantine, so that shouldn't matter in theory but it strikes me it's a you're a heck of a lot safer and uh in a city where there's you know 15 10 15 20 new cases a day as opposed to i don't know what it is in orlando i can only get uh, miami's the, the center epicenter of their latest outbreak so anyway good luck to them i don't want to mm-hmm. don't want to yeah. uh, hopefully hopefully it all works out for for, for everybody yeah. and Everywhere. And uh, everywhere on the on this on this COVID front, and and, and they're forging ahead. I hope their plan works. I hope they get it right. Bruce, thank you for talking tonight. Yeah, thanks everyone for listening.
And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. <laughs>